Uh, this is a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. Now I, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I, or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The word of the Lord. I'm really grateful to be with you this morning, uh, both Hannah and I. I love this passage of scripture. It's been important in my life, and I feel as if it'll be uh, relevant for yours as well. I once read this story about a college student who had a presentation for a speech class, and the assignment was to, uh, to give a lesson and to drive home your point, your main point, in a powerful way. And so he decided to talk about the law of the pendulum. The law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than it was released. So the student spent 20 minutes explaining the uh, physical principles that govern the swinging of a pendulum. He said, you know, there's friction and gravity that makes the arc of a pendulum swing back and forth smaller and smaller until it settles in the middle at an equilibrium. And so he, he made a, a, a small pendulum and he stuck a tack the top of the chalkboard and he swung the, uh, the small pendulum he made back and forth and he marked a line each time showing that the arc of the pendulum swing got smaller and smaller. And so he looked at the class and said, now who here believes in the law of the pendulum? And everyone raised their hands, the teacher included. And this is where things got interesting. So he asked the teacher to, to sit in a chair. He put a chair on a table next to a brick wall. He said, sit against this brick wall right here. And then he pointed to the, the rafters in the ceiling, these steel beams. And from the rafters was hanging some parachute cords that are like 500 pounds strength. And at the bottom of these cords was a 250 pound weight. And he grabbed this 250 pound pendulum and he brought it all the way to the, the professor's face about an inch from his nose. And he says, now who here believes in the law of the pendulum? 
And everyone was like, yeah, we believe. And he looked over into his professor's eyes. There were sweat on his forehead. And he said, sir, do you believe in this law? And there was a long pause. And he said, yes. And then the student let this 250-pound weight go. It swished across, across the room. And it paused very briefly on the opposite side. And it came back. And as it came back, the professor dove on the ground. <laughs> And the student looked up and says, does this man believe in the law of the pendulum? And everyone said, no, no. Um, this funny story illustrates a not so funny problem in Corinth. The Corinthians had said they believed in the gospel, but now they appear to be wavering. You know, and like the Corinthians, we too can waver in our belief even on the most important aspects of our faith. You know, we live in a world that views the gospel as implausible at times, naive. And so God comes to us this morning, and he comes to give us strength. He comes to help us, to help us hold fast in the day of testing. And we learn four things from God's word. He says to hold fast, we need to understand true belief, we need to know the true gospel, we need to trust the true witnesses, and we need to experience the grace of God. So, to hold fast, we need to understand true belief. Paul is writing to a church whom he loves, but also to a church who's troubling him. He begins his, uh, this chapter with a soft rebuke. He says, Now I would uh, remind you, brothers. In the Greek it actually says, Now I would make known to you. Paul is not reminding the Corinthians of something they've forgotten. He's reasserting a belief, a, tr a truth on, a, on which they appear to be wavering. The church in Corinth is wavering on belief in the bodily resurrection of believers. Verse 12, Paul tells us this. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In the Greco-Roman world, most people believed after you died, you were forever disembodied and you lived in this shadowy underworld. Uh, belief in a bodily existence after death was known only through you know, fables and myths and was looked at as ridiculous and silly by the educated of the world. At RUF International, I have the privilege of sitting across from scholars and brilliant minds from all over the world uh, and studying God's Word. One night we asked what do you believe happens after we die? A student from Iran says, you know, I think we just disappear. I don't believe, I think we cease to exist. A student from, uh, from China said that, um, I don't think we can know such things. It's impossible to know. You know, what we've found in our ministry is that most of the scholars and students have left their inherited faith. Uh, this is true of uh, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists. Many have moved on to what they consider to be a more educated view of the things. Like the Corinthians, I mean, in like fashion, the Corinthians are adopting a popular reasoning of the day. And Paul says that adopting this reasoning actually undermines, it threatens confidence in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is to say, this is not an unimportant controversy. This deals with the gospel itself. Paul says in verse 1, I make known to you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then he qualifies it. If you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. 
The New Testament often speaks of salvation in three senses. You were saved at conversion. You're being saved throughout this life as God's Spirit works in you to make you more like Christ. And you will be saved in the future in the judgment. And these three views, aspects of salvation are inseparable. God preserves his people. And yet, if you are not being saved by the gospel, you have not been saved. The marker of true belief is that true belief holds fast to Jesus until the end. During college, Hannah and I had great sadness over a friend who had false belief. Uh, Alice, a student from Asia, after months and months of studying the Bible together with Hannah and, her, and some women, uh, came out of a sense of guilt uh, to one of her friends and professed faith in Jesus. She joined our church. I can still remember today she was on her knees before our congregation and was baptized. But within a week, however, what appeared to be you know, true faith began to crumble. She distances herself from her Christian friends, and as she entered into an illicit relationship, eventually she cut her ties from Christ in the church completely, and with inexplicable anger towards those who loved her, she left without saying a word. We were filled with grief. We were filled with grief. So in this, this soft rebuke of Paul poses a rather serious question to the Corinthians. He says, do you have true belief? What kind of belief someone has will ultimately be revealed in how they respond to God in things like adversity, opposition, and temptation. God wants us this morning to respond to him in true faith, holding fast to the gospel of grace to the end. To hold fast, we also need to know the true gospel. At the beginning of, this, of Paul's argument, it's as if he wants to say the gospel is true even apart from his ministry. In verse 3 it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This, 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 these terms of delivered and received, these are technical terms in the New Testament. It's talking about the passing on of an authoritative tradition. Paul did not make these things up, in other words. He in one sense received this message from the risen Christ himself, but also he was part of this broader community that delivered to him and confirmed the true gospel. You know, this delivered tradition is found in verses 3 and 4, and it is the words of a very, very early Christian creed. It was probably used as a profession of faith for baptism. And so scholars have studied this, and N.T. Wright and people like James Dunn say this creed originates two years after the resurrection of Jesus, no later than that. In other words, this wasn't some myth that was created later about Jesus. No, this is, this is what the very first Christians believed. They believed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul didn't preach his own message, he's telling the Corinthians. Verse 11 says, whether it was I or they that preached, we preached and you believed. Paul preached the true gospel, the gospel that the whole church received from the beginning. He did not preach rumors about Jesus. No, he preached the authoritative tradition. Note that verse 3 says, our sins. Jesus did not come to die for sins in general. He came to die for the sins that belong to us. 
Many times when we think of the human condition, we'll describe it in terms of you know, imperfection or weakness or brokenness. And those things are true about us. But the, but the Bible most often describes the human condition in terms of sin. The Bible says we have uh, done evil in the eyes of God. And so we are legally culpable and we are morally corrupt. And this is what Jesus came to solve. In love, God sent his son to bear the penalty of our sins. He satisfied the legal demands of the law on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And in the resurrection, he has secured for us moral renewal. He's come to give us life, new life in the spirit, in the spirit. So how are you doing this morning? Are you wavering? Be encouraged because God cares for you. He doesn't want you to be stuck in this place forever. He wants to remind you of the true gospel, the gospel that originated in the ministry of Jesus, the gospel received by the whole church. You know, and in this reminder that we receive from Paul, there's a call. There's a call to know the true gospel, not only for ourselves, but for others. Paul could relay the message of the gospel to the church in Corinth because he knew it himself. And it wasn't just in an academic sense. He applied it to himself and was able to, with passion and with love, communicate to his beloved church. So this morning, maybe some of us, what we need is to be reminded, refocused, recentered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a world that is filled with alternative messages and alternative priorities. We have to, with diligence, keep the main thing, the main thing in our hearts. How can we do this? You know, in verses 3 and 4 of this creed, this early creed was likely memorized and by the earliest Christians. You know, most of the early Christians couldn't read. And so if they were going to meditate on Scripture, they had to memorize it. So maybe we should pick up and continue this tradition, memorize this, this creed right now this morning, and meditate on the goodness of God to us in the gospel. Because if we're going to hold fast, we need to know the true gospel. To hold fast, we also need to trust the true witnesses. Following this, Paul provides for us a list of eyewitnesses to Jesus. Let's look at a couple of those. Look at verse 6. It says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had fallen asleep. From the, bar- from the very beginning, Christianity was a public religion. You know, this isn't true for most religions. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a prophet would have an encounter with a divine being in private, and then he would go out into the public and persuade others to believe him and to follow him from what he's learned. But Christianity, on the other hand, Jesus, on the other hand, came to us as a public person. He preached publicly. He healed publicly. He was crucified publicly. He was buried in a known tomb, and he was risen before the eyes of the public. Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 people, and he says most of whom are still alive. In other words, if the Corinthians are doubting the bodily resurrection, they can just go ask somebody. They're around. The witnesses are here to be interrogated. Look at verse 7. It says, Then he appeared to James. You know, James is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary 
and of Joseph. Did you know this, that during Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not believe Jesus was the Messiah? In John chapter 7, we have the disciples telling Jesus to go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, and go do miracles there. And the narrator says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. During the course of Jesus' ministry, sometimes his parents and his family thought he's going crazy, right? Um, can, you, can you blame them? Can you blame them? Some of you have brothers. What if your brother was going around the countryside as an evangelist saying that I am the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to God except through me, right? That might be uh, challenging for some of you brothers and sisters. Um, but what do we see? What do we see? After Jesus is risen from the dead, what do we find? James is standing alongside the apostles. James would become a pillar in the church. He would be the first bishop of the church of Jerusalem. He would write the letter of James, which is in our New Testament. And we learn from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, that James would ultimately be stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. The doubting brother had become the brother who would not deny the risen Lord, even for the sake of death. How could this happen? The answer is simple. The risen Lord appeared to James. So maybe some of you today are wavering because you have doubts. God cares about your doubts. You know, the Corinthians had doubts. Paul didn't say, stop it and be quiet. No, Paul tried to answer their concerns. He tried to break down those barriers to faith. He tried to demonstrate the credibility of the message. And so this morning, if you have doubts, God invites you to investigate, to investigate. And if you're afraid of what you might find, don't be. Christianity can withstand your scrutiny. How might you investigate? Maybe get a good book recommendation. Maybe reach out to a mature Christian friend, a knowledgeable friend, or perhaps uh, the best way to start is just reaching out to your pastors. Trust me, pastors love hearing your questions and walking with you uh, through those doubts. So to hold fast, we need to trust the true witnesses. You know, in this, in this uh, answer to the Corinthians' doubts, there's a call for us, though. There's a call to move from doubt to firm faith. Because when the time of testing comes upon us, when the need to hold fast presses in, we need to know who to trust. We need to trust the faithful witness of God's word. And lastly, to hold fast, we need to experience the grace of God. You know, Paul was also an eyewitness to the risen Christ. So he lists himself. Paul was, uh, after encountering the risen Christ, Paul went from terrorizing Christians to being the greatest missionary to ever live. But Paul wasn't only a man who encountered the risen Christ. He was a man who experienced the grace of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul, had, Paul before he had experienced the grace of God, was a very prideful man, a very self-righteous man. In Philippians 3, he said, I have reason to boast in the flesh. He had reason for confidence in the flesh. Where did his confidence lie? Paul's confidence lied in his 
ethnic heritage. He was a, of the tribe of Benjamin in his religious performance. He was a Pharisee in his good works. He was zealous in his personal righteousness of himself. He says, as to the law, I was blameless. But something's happened to Paul. Paul now says, I am the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians, he says, I am the least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Least of the apostles, least of the saints, foremost of sinners. God revealed to him his holiness, God's holiness. Paul, confronted with this, uh, was humbled. He, he was brought low by God. And this is where he experienced the grace of God. He says, um, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace that Paul experienced was the grace of forgiveness of sins. Paul's debt before God was enormous. He was a violent opponent to Jesus. He could not have paid back to God for what he had done. He was bankrupt before God. He recognized his bankruptcy, so he turned to God to find mercy in Jesus Christ. His sins were forgiven. He was declared righteous in the courtroom of God. He was justified. The grace that Paul experienced was not only the grace of forgiveness of sins, but it was also the grace of spiritual transformation. He says, His grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The God of grace, the God of the God that gives the grace of forgiveness of sins, always along with this, gives the grace of spiritual transformation. Because all of the blessings of God are found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it this way. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It can't be because those who have received the lavish grace of God cannot remain the same. You know, we're not perfect. We still sin, but we are not the same, right? Those who have experienced the hospitality of God seek to show hospitality to others. Those who have received the kindness of God in the gospel seek to show kindness to others. Those who have received the forgiveness of God seek to forgive others. Those who receive the unmerited grace of God work out of gratitude to make God's grace known to others. Paul worked harder than anyone to make the name of Christ known among the nations because the grace of God was at work within Paul. So this morning, to hold fast, we need to experience the grace of God. So have you recognized your need of grace? Have you said alongside Paul, I am the foremost of sinners? You know, we can't experience the grace of God apart from recognizing our need of it. We need God's grace. We need it from the beginning of the Christian life until the end of the Christian life. Some of you today might be wavering because you need to experience the grace of God. And there's good news. There's good news. You qualify. All he requires of us is need of him. So do you need grace this morning? God says Christ died for your sins and he rose again to give you life. And the call of the gospel is to humble ourselves. It's to turn away from self-confidence and self-righteousness 
and to turn to Jesus and to receive him as Lord and Savior. And if you do this, God promises to pour out upon you grace upon grace upon grace, the grace of forgiveness of sins, the grace of spiritual transformation. He will give to you his Holy Spirit, and he will give you the strength to hold fast in the day of testing. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we, if it was up to us, if we were separated from your grace, Lord, we would be hopeless. But because of what you've done through Jesus Christ, your Son, we have reason for great hope. Lord, I ask today that you would strengthen our weak knees, that you would give us strength to hold fast, to continue in this Christian life, believing and resting upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. Amen.